Welcome to the daily objective. So objectives have a very unique point of view about the United States. Actually, not a unique point of view. They have a view of the United States as a unique nation in two ways. The first is that those who founded the nation were intellectuals who were inspired by an ideal. And this ideal was the enlightenment vision of individual freedom and the pursuit of life, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the other thing that it's the first country that was not based on a tribal premise of common ancestry or whatever, but it was based on an idea. However, this is a point of view which is contested. So this week I've read Joran uh, Hazoni's Conservatism uh, Rediscovery, and there he makes a very different, he has a very different point of view on the United States. So I'm going to present this alternative view, and Jason is going to help us figure out which of these views is the proper one. So what does uh, what is the view of many conservatives and also of some libertarians? That the majority of founding fathers were not liberals. They were actually conservatives. And what did they want to conserve? They wanted to conserve the English tradition of common law and of the English constitution. So they love the constitutional tradition. They love their religious traditions. They were Christian conservatives and they liked how they lived their lives in the colony. So the revolution, the American revolution was not so much a revolution towards a new ideal or towards a new way of life and a new political system. It was mostly an attempt towards a restoration. They wanted to restore the British constitutional order. And the one who was against this constitutional order was King George III. So the problem was that the British government had overstepped its authority and it was the British government who was unconstitutional. Unconstitutional compared to what? Compared to the English uh, constitution. So there were some radicals like Thomas Jefferson who were inspired by uh, John Locke and by the, by the Enlightenment, but they were the minority. And also not only they were the minority, says the narrative, but also they were proven as personalities that were not really to be celebrated because later they got inspired by the French Revolution. And if you get inspired by the French Revolution, obviously you cannot, uh, you cannot be a proponent of the spirit of the American Revolution. So according to this idea, the founding fathers were nationalists or the majority of the founding fathers were nationalists. This means that they regarded America as a distinct nation with its own tradition, with its own values, with its religion and a common heritage. But if the founding fathers were American nationalists, this means that the idea that many conserve, that many objectivists have that United, that United States is a creedal nation, a nation created on a creed, a nation created on an ideal, then it is false. It's just a nation that's created like every other nation. These are the questions that we will try to answer today with Jason. So Jason, the first question, the founding fathers, were they conservatives who just wanted to restore the old order, how they lived in the colonies for centuries before uh, King George stepped out of line? Or were they radicals? No, they, um, they were radicals um, in a number of senses. First, I just want to 
start by recognizing the fact that the narrative that you've just summarized, the conservative narrative that you've just summarized, essentially is a re, it's an, basically it's an interpretation and adaptation of Edmund Burke, uh, as some people read him. Burke uh, is a Whig politician in the 18th century. He was for a time the party whip of the Whigs. He was an outspoken defender of often of, of, of individual rights on behalf of, of people throughout the British Empire, including in Ireland and India and in the American colonies, often ahead of his time. But he severely denounces um, the Jacobin turn in the French Revolution. And the way that conservatives appropriate Burke as the father of kind of conservatism is to say that when Burke is arguing as early as 1771 against various measures that the British government is imposing on the American colonies and saying, this is a bad idea, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this attack, that really all he's saying, all that Burke is saying is Englishmen deserve the rights as long established in English common law. And when they eventually revolt, they're really just standing up as Englishmen for the rights Englishmen have always had, that King George III has been, and some of his parliament have been trampling on. And it's true that Burke says those sorts of things, but it's also the case, it's, 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 also, it's also the case that um, it's not merely as Englishmen that the American, that the founding fathers of the United States sort of see themselves and see the project of the revolution. Perhaps at the outset in the earliest continent, the first continental Congress, the earliest days, maybe some of them still see that, they, some of them are still trying to seek redress. But by 1776, by the time of the Declaration of Independence, even if they see that, even if they recognize that for many, though not all of the people in the colonies, there is a shared culture, a shared consanguinity or, or whatever with, with the English, they, know, they are now on their own political trajectory. They have their own political destiny. And it's not about being related to those people anymore. It's about the kind of, the kind of government that, they're, that they are seeking. And the kind of government that they are seeking is radical in the sense that in many respects, it diverges from anything that was previously on record. And just looking at a tradition of English common law doesn't do enough to explain what they were doing and how they saw themselves. So for example, right, though there were various rights in English common law that go back to Anglo-Saxon traditions, as well as, a series of rights and negotiations between crown and parliament since the Magna Carta on. Um, at no point had the English or, um, or really any other major European country attempted to have a churchless state, right? So not, so there were member, there were philosophers of the enlightenment who said, okay, I mean, every country has a church. Um, religion is a kind of, social glue, but we should tolerate people of other religions. 
But the more radical part of the Enlightenment said, no, what, just get church out of the government altogether. And that was decisively, decisively the stance that the founding fathers took and then agreed upon. That like so much so that George Washington, there's this famous letter he writes to an er, to an early synagogue. Um, and they ask, you know, hey, you know, if this new constitution goes through, are we going to be tolerated? He goes, forget tolerated. This isn't about you being tolerated. Like you're free to do your, he says in this country, everybody's free to practice any religion or no religion because we don't have a state religion at all. So that's radical, right? Different, the different colonies have different religious backgrounds. They have different denominations. They have different ideologies. Um, so it's not like, it can't be that it's a nationalistic picture because the first government that the, that the, that the revolutionaries establish isn't a single nation, it's a confederation of 13 nations. And eventually they decide, okay, this is not working. And some visionaries, federalists said, you know, we would work better as a country together. But that was an argument that had to be had. Different people from different parts didn't say that. So that's a little bit more on the, were they nationalists? No, um, un unless the nations were Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Delaware, Rhode Island, those nations maybe, but even there, not as much. So, and there are other aspects of their political institutions that we can and should talk about that are similarly radical, but they are not looking to, if they are looking to history, they are looking to the lessons of history that they gather from, some from English history, but a lot from Roman history as the, and, and Greek history as they understand it. Um, uh, and some of the history of the republics of Italy. So that they're like digging deep into the past, not because they are the inheritors of, you know, the Venetian Republic or something like that, but because they think, okay, we can learn something from the governments of the past and we can create a more perfect union based around certain principles. But if you can show me, you know, but I don't, I mean, part of the idea that Rand and others take on the United States as a creedal nation and what's unique about it, part of it is, you can point out times and places where different powers in a country are fighting a civil war, they grind each other down, they realize they have to come to some negotiation, they push and pull and push and pull till they arrive at some kind of power structure that's usually unstable, but once in a blue moon is stable enough that it lasts for a while. And you go, well, they had a constitution, you know, or it evolves slowly over time. But what you don't find with one important exception, is people sitting down and going, you know what? What kind of government should we have? Well, let's look at the argument. Should we have an executive separate from the legislature? Pros and cons, right? Should we have, should we name all the rights that there are explicitly? Or does everybody understand that and it's enough just to add a bill of rights maybe later and so forth? The exception, I was going to make is that you do see some of this of, of let's explicitly think about this, about how we're going to do this. Um, when Greek city-states start colonizing rapidly in the eighth to sixth century BCE, 
And at that time, you do start to see the kind of sages of Greece start. Many of them are people who just wrote constitutions. They came up with law systems. Um, and so th that was a bit of a, a kind of experiment. And, and the founders looked to some of the historical records as limited as they were about that kind of thing. So anyway, my answer is it was radical. It was radical in a number of respects. It was extremely radical with respect to no state church. It was extremely radical with the elimination of all ennoblements. So there are no, no there is no nobility whatsoever. It's radical with the extent to which it invests into republicanism. Um, it's more Republican than the most Republican people in England were. It is a break. It is not, they not, though they, many of them think of themselves culturally as sort of English. They do not think of their national identity as other English people. They do not like say the Commonwealth nations in Canada and Australia. They did not continue to listen to it or care about, you know, think of the king as their sovereign, even in a, even in a symbolic way, right? So in all these ways, it's a, it's a radical break from the past. It's a radical break from previous kinds of government that they're familiar with. So here's a follow-up question. Actually, before the follow-up, let me read this super chat because it's an important clarification that needs to be made. So Marlon says, and thank you, Marlon, a lot for your contribution, says, there was no English constitution. Also, weren't there good things in English common law? This doesn't mean the founders were conservatives. So yes, there was no English constitution, but the body, let's say, of uh, legislation, including the common law that creates the legal identity, let's say, in, the, in England, it's called, the, it's called the English constitution. But here's a question related to the constitution, which the conservatives claim it's a, it's, it's a point to their advantage. It's an argument to their advantage. So they say that the 1776 Declaration of Independence was indeed radical, and it had the signature, the intellectual signature of Jefferson. And the 1777 Articles of Confederation also were radical. But then they say the founding father decided to go to a more pragmatic approach. So the Constitution of 1787 and the Bill of Rights of 1789 were way less radical, way more pragmatic, and way more and way closer to the spirit of the common law. So the argument was that George Washington realized that all this radical talk was created a system that was would lead to disintegration. And soon they realized that they had to go back to the route of tradition, back to the route of a stronger executive power, to a government which resembles more the executive as we know it in England. A lot of powers, but powers that are controlled by a parliament and powers that the sovereign cannot, or the prime minister or the president, they cannot change based on a whim. So they have a lot of power, but within a particular context. So the argument is soon they returned to the more continental tradition and they left behind Jefferson's fantasies. What's your, what's your answer to that? So a couple of things. First, um, while there is no single document that is the supreme law of Great Britain uh, or the United Kingdom now or then, um, there was, and, and Englishmen regularly spoke of their constitution. 
So in the United States, we think of co the Constitution as a document which lays out the supreme law and system of our government. The older sense of a constitution is just a system of government and a system of laws. So the Aristotle's constitution of Athens, for example, is sort of the political history and the key laws and the key power structures of Athens, right? So the British regularly spoke about their constitution. In, uh, by 1770, Blackstone has published his commentary on the laws of, uh, uh, commentary on the laws of England. Yeah, commentary on, on the laws of England, which becomes like the definitive statement for two or three generations of the English constitution. Immensely popular work. Everybody at the time would have thought like, yeah, the, there's a constitution. Um, we know what it is. Like there are three branches of parliament, crown, commons, and lords, right? There are these things, there's the peerage, there's this, there's that. There's the, these rules, there's that things, and it's all complicated and there are lots of traditions, but we know what, how it is and what it works. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing, so yeah, no supreme document, supreme law to rule all the others, um, but very much what everybody at the time called and thought of as a constitution. Okay, now it is argued by some that the revolution sees a more radical phase, in particular, a more Jeffersonian anti-federalist phase that the federalists represent um, a move in a more, quote unquote, conservative or less exactly. radical. All right, well, look, again, this is kind of filtered through thinking about everything through the lens of, of, of Burke and not even perhaps Burke himself, but how people read and and people influenced by Burke. So first off, some of it is that the anti-federalist Jefferson and people in his party do start backing the French Revolution, where, whereas the Federalists generally look askance of it. And that over time, though during the revolution, France is our ally against Great Britain, over time, um, Federalists see kind of more in common with Britain, think of Britain as a better trading partner, the French Revolution turns us off of France, then there's Napoleon and he's a problem, et cetera, right? Um, okay, so first off, right, um, it's not, there's no reason per se that um, the French Revolution and its radicalism has to be sort of tied up with um, the anti-federalists. There are respects in which, um, there are respects in which the Federalists were more radical in their political philosophy than Jefferson. That, I just, so I, I don't really believe that they became less radical. I, I think they became, I think some of their projects shift, shifted in what they were trying to accomplish, but radical in the sense of breaking from tradition, I think that remained in Federalism in the following way. Jefferson still thinks of liberty in many respects in an older form of republicanism, a form of republicanism that goes all the way back to ancient times in Rome. What sometimes Quentin Skinner calls um, uh, the third kind of liberty. So neither positive nor negative liberty, but this republican liberty, um, which is basically, it's a liberty of nobody can make me do something 
I am autonomous, but to be autonomous, I have to have a certain amount of power and I have to have a certain amount of independence. So, so liberty as independence, but that also means financial independence. I can't be, I can't be commercially dependent on my clients because I can't be dependent on these other things, right? So it's an anti-commercial, it's a highly agrarian picture. It's anti, it tends to be anti-mercantile and thus in, indirectly at least anti-capitalist. Um, whereas the federalists are much more pro-trade, pro-industry. Why? Well, because the, the federalists actually are thinking more of liberty in the negative sense, which is the more radical sense. Like you have these individual rights the older way thinks the way you stay free is you participate in government, right? Citizens are the stakeholders in government. They're the ones who share the power. The way that federalists think of it and what's really radical about the American Revolution, I, I draw this from work of Gordon Wood, is the American founding fathers are the ones who start saying, actually being involved in the state is a necessary evil. The, the way you participate is by being part of society, not by being part of the government. You, you do that if you have to, but, but actually the extent to which you can be free from ever worrying about the state, the better. And you're just free if you're left alone from the state. So liberty is not, you are a powerful man who owns all this land and never has to be in commerce with anybody else. You're like a little Lord unto yourself and, um, and, and so you have liberty and the next guy in the next plantation who owns it has liberty and, and so on. Um, and you all are in the house of Burgesses or, some, Burgesses or something. No, instead it's like, yeah, you know, like um, nobody bothers us and we're free to trade with one another. And that's our freedom is that nobody bothers us. So that picture is much more the Federalist picture that is much more a transformative and proto and, and pro-capitalist, pro, proto-capitalist it's what allows and leads to capitalism um, and then industrialization. So that's in the federalist mindset. It's not in the anti-federalist mindset. It's something that people like Hamilton get and Jefferson doesn't. Right. And it would be very interesting to next time we discuss to have a whole episode on Hamilton, on whether Hamilton is a hero or whether Hamilton is a is the beginning of authoritarian tendencies in the in the United in the United States. So, Jason. So I think you we answered both questions. In terms of the creedal nation question, if we have to give, let's say, an answer on that question on itself, was after all, was the United States created a nation that was created based on an idea? Or was it created by people who felt that suddenly their way of life was threatened? So what would be the short answer to that? It, well, it's both, but the more important aspect is the former. Because plenty of people have had revolts because they felt that their power was shifting. They felt that they were losing power. They felt that they were losing rights, that they, that things that they had in the past were being trampled on. But the more important question is, what is it that they, they thought was being trampled on? How, did, how did, they, did they understand it in a principled way or in some sort of ad hoc way? And then what did they move towards? Did they just move for their gang to regain the upper hand? 
or did they move to create an entirely new system to defend something? So you could say something like, you know, um, red hat wearing um, working class white in the United States feel like they're losing their country and they're willing to in, endorse um, conspiracy theories about elections and overturn democratic elections to have their candidates put into office, right? Um, is that is that is that creedal? I mean, unless you want, unless the creed is you know white nationalism, no. Um, or it's yes and no. I mean, it's it's unprincipled. But that's not what these founding fathers are doing. Um, they they have been raised in an intellectual climate where they have been reading lots of Enlightenment political philosophy and just Enlightenment philosophy. So they are constantly talking about the rights of man. They are, they are, they are thinking about you know, what a republic is and how it should be established. Um, arguably, arguably, who, you know, if, if King George hadn't gone mad, if, if Parliament hadn't sort of backed his plane, got ever more uh, um, intolerable series of acts, right, passed, would there have been an American Revolution? You know, I, I tend to suspect, yeah, it would have happened anyway. Um, maybe just a little later or something like that. Um, and there are plenty of people who point out that like, you know, like the tax burdens, the things that these people were complaining about was not so awful. They were just a bunch of rich white guys who didn't want to pay their taxes. Well, but if the, if the and you know, after all these taxes were to pay for the French Indian War, which was, you know, to some extent benefited them. So if you look at it that way, you're like, yeah, it's about the kind of ultimately they couldn't reconcile themselves because they couldn't stand being in the kind of nation that had a king or it had a distant parliament that they couldn't that they couldn't be represented in and that didn't respect certain rights of theirs and they weren't going to stand for it in a way that other people in other places in other parts of the empire were willing to stand for it for longer or 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 at least couldn't re revolt so that's i think so that's why I say um, both. And I was going to say something else, but I forgot. Anyway, that's... No, because your, your explanation made it uh, quite understandable to me and made me think of a different example from, let's say, the Balkan history. So when the Ottomans take over parts of the Balkan, an aristocrat in Romania, Vlad Tepes, the guy who would give rise to the legend of Dracula, revolts against the Ottomans, but not based on an idea, based on he wanted to be the one who could impale and rule and terrorize the population. And now someone else was breaking this quote tradition. So yeah. there are examples of people who rise up because they want to go to, a, to how things were, but how things were is very important. Like what type of how things were do you want to return to? So do you want to return to, uh, to, to a status quo ante where you where you have a static and uh, and uh, and a way of life that is that is uh, full of uh, terror and full of uh, i don't know and freedom or do you come up with a with a with a new idea of what's the relationship between the individual and the state which is clearly what happened in the united states so i think right. uh, yeah so like a battle over power or a reaction to a shift in power, a backlash to that, a reaction to that, can be a kind of principled ideological thing or not. 
and it can be a good one or a bad one. So um, a, a, a religious fundamentalist society that is starting to show secularization or um, more free thought is going to have a crackdown. And I, I would say that it is a, a principled philosophical response of, of, your, of, your, um, of your theocrats, of your hierophant. Like, yeah, they, they know what this is about, right? Either they control men's souls or they don't, and they're gonna use the sword to make sure that they do. That's principled, but it's, or not principled in the sense of a good principle, but it is philosophical. Um, and then there's just, I think, you know, my gang versus your gang. And you could you can say implicit in that is a kind of primitive collectivism as an idea. But you know, often that's it's pretty, it's pretty uh, inarticulate at, at best. You know. That's very clear, and I think it uh, it makes the point. So we are at 30 minutes past. So let's see what's next today from the channel. So at 8 p.m. UK time, uh, keep it, keeping it real with James and Robert. The topic is money and sex, the root and result of all good, as opposed to all evil. And then 10 p.m. UK time, TV talk with Mark Pellegrino and Jacqueline Schumann and Jennifer Buani. Special announcement tomorrow, Saturday, August the 27th at 4 p.m. UK time, only for members, Productivity Hub on the impact of Darwin's theory on natural, of natural selection with Megan Ribbons. It's open again only to ARC UK members, but you can find a link on how to become a member. Thanks to Marilyn and Christopher for your super chats. And By the last, way, yeah. Uh if, if for anyone who's going to do that, um, a couple of weeks ago, I recorded um, a Philosophy Fridays talk on the subject of the theory of natural selection and its, and its role or and its relation to philosophy. So it's philosophical upshots, it's how it has figured in philosophical debates. So um, I encourage everybody to take a look at that. Where can they find that? Um, they can find that on the channel on YouTube. So just in the videos. It's, oh, okay. Um, if you just, you know, if you look at, uh, Daniel's going to post the link. So Good. So check this out. People, it's going to be on the description of this show. We've got one last super chat from Kathleen. Thank you very much. I just want you all to keep going and discussing things, doing your brilliant work and helping make life better for people like me. Cool. That's so great to hear, Kathleen. That's a very nice end uh, for the week. So that's going to be our... Uh, that's gonna be the last uh, the uh, last point of the week. Let me just say, yes. um, I recommend to everybody. It's a great book. It's very famous. Um, uh, Gordon Woods, um, 1994, um, Radicalism in the American Revolution. Um, it's it's very good, and it um, and some of the ideas, some of the things I'm talking about are there. Some of what I'm talking about is. Is not there, but um, I think it's a very good um, treatment. Just of this. checking it out uh, on Amazon. Okay, good. There's also so the price is reasonable, and there's also a Kindle version in quite a reasonable price. The Radicalism of the American Revolution by Gordon Wood. And if you want, uh, Daniel, you can include this in the episode notes. Okay, Jason, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And many thanks to our audience. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.